Good evening. Um, so we turn our attention this evening to Parshas Kisovo. <clears throat> and as we know, in the beginning of Parshas Kisovo, we have the mitzvah of Bikurim, <clears throat> the first fruits. And there's many details relating to this mitzvah. Uh, there is indeed an entire Masechta of Mishnayis, Maseches Bikurim, in Seder Zerayim. And I'd like to focus on one of the elements, one of the aspects of the mitzvah of Bikurim, and that is Tanufa. Tanufa is waving. And as we know, there are certain times when certain things in the Beis HaMikdash need to be waved, and the way the Gemara describes it, <coughs> the waving is male umorid, he waves it up and down, mole humevi, to and fro. That sounds quite remote from anything that we do, but actually it's not so. Because whenever the Gemara talks about the tenufa, the waving of certain things, it always associates it with something that we are about to wave quite soon. And that is the arbaminim. The Na'anuim of the Lulav and the Esrog are always <coughs> uh, associated with those movements of Male Umurid, Molech Umevi. And so while we, we currently do not have the Tnufa of things on the base of Migdash, but we do have the Tnufa of the, of the Arba Minim, each one according to their Minhag. The question is what is the source in the Parsha for the mitzvah of Tnufa? of waving the Bikurim. And you'll be pleased to hear, it's a machlokas. It's a dispute <coughs> amongst the Tanoim. And let us see the two opinions, and then we'll see what happens as a result of that. The first opinion, Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov, who is uh, famous among the Tanoim, because every statement of his is actually Paskan Lahalacha. The Gemara says about Rebbe Lezer ben Yaakov, Mishnas Rebbe Lezer ben Yaakov, Kav Venaki, short and sweet. What, he doesn't say much, but whatever he says is Paskan the Halacha. So without giving too much away, <coughs> halachically, but Rebbe Lezer ben Yaakov derives it from Pasuk Dalad. Let's see Pasuk Dalad and at least describe what uh, Rebbe Lezer ben Yaakov learns. Pasuk Dalad re- reads, the Kohen shall take the basket. We know Bikurim are brought in a basket. And he shall place it before the Mizbeach. Rebeleza ben Yaakov derives the mitzvah of Tanufa, of waving the Bikurim, from the words Velakach HaKohen. The opening words of the Pasuk, <coughs> he shall take it, he takes it to wave it. Okay, it's Medrash Halacha, but that's the source according to Rebbe ben Yaakov, Pasuk Dalet. And who disputes him? Another Tana, another rabbi of the Mishnah, Rabbi Yehuda. And Rabbi Yehuda derives it from the concluding words, or the words in Pasuk Yud. At the end, the one who brings Bikurim says, I have brought my first fruits, Hashem, that you have given me. The Torah says to the one who brings the fruit, and you shall place it before Hashem, says Rabbi Yehuda. That is Tanufa.
That's the waving. <coughs> so if we could summarize, what we've seen is all agree there is a mitzvah to wave the Bikurim. The question is, where does it come from? What is its source? According to the first opinion, Rabbi Lesa ben Yaakov, it's in Pasuk Dalet. And according to the second opinion, Rabbi Huda, it's in Pasuk Yud. And we may be wondering, what does all of this have to do with us? As if to say, as much as there's a machlokas, okay, we've seen machlokas before. What are the uh, consequences, if any? What are the ramifications of this machlokas? But as we will see, the ramifications are quite fundamental, for they ultimately will get to the heart of what Bikurim are about in terms of how we understand how to categorize them. <clears throat> and let us preface in the following way. We know in Halacha that there are certain foods, shall we say, <coughs> that can only be consumed by Kohanim. And if you were to ask to list half a dozen examples, you probably could without too much trouble. But what's important for us is that these items that can only be eaten by a Kohen can actually be divided into two categories. We'll name them and then we'll, get, we'll describe them and give examples. The first category is called Kodshe Mizbeach. Things that are holy associated with the Mizbeach. And what will be in that category? Things like Korbonos, Korbonos or the parts of Korbonos that can only be eaten by a Kohen. And they're called Kodshe Mizbeach because they're offered on the Mizbeach. And they can only, they're very, very base Hamikdash connected. Part of it is offered on the Mizbeach, and the rest of it has to be eaten in the environs of the Mizbeach, either on the premises itself of the temple courtyard or in, within the walls of Yerushalayim. That's one type of special food for the Kohanim, sanctified food for the Kohanim, what we've called Kodshe Mizbeach, sanctified food of the Mizbeach. But there is another type of food. Again, only the Kohanim can eat it, but it has nothing to do with the Mizbeach. It never comes anywhere near the Beit HaMikdash, doesn't have to, and can be eaten anywhere, only by a Kohen, but it can be eaten anywhere. <coughs> For example, Truma. Truma, as we know, can only be eaten by a Kohen. It's never brought to the Beit HaMikdash. It's what is known as Kodshe Gvul, sanctified food, but for all borders, all throughout the, the entire land of Israel. So these are the two, and it's very interesting because we know all these examples. It may never have occurred to us to, to categorize them in this way. But Chazal do. And Achar Advarim Ha'ele, let us come, and in light of this, let us come to consider Bikurim. What type of, of uh, category do Bikurim fit into? What is the background to the question? The fact that Bikurim seem to have aspects of both of these. On the one hand, Bikurim, unlike Truma, Bikurim, the first fruits, do need to be brought to the Beis HaMikdash. I mean, they're not offered up on the Mizbeach, that, that's true. <coughs> but Truma never needs to be brought to the Beis HaMikdash. Bikurim do, the first fruits do. That's on the one hand. But on the other hand, Bikurim, like Truma, can be eaten anywhere in the land of Israel. So they seem to have aspects of both, which leads us to the question, but what is their primary 
characteristic? What is their primary definition? Are they Kodshe Gvul at heart, like Truma, with perhaps a twist? Or are they Kodshe Mizbeach, like Karbonos, with a twist? That's an interesting Shaila. How do you categorize Bikurim in light of the above? And <coughs> the Gemara informs us that this matter is a machlokas between none other than the Rabbi Yehuda and the Chachamim. How do we see this in action? Well, as we know, Bikurim can only be eaten by a Kohen. But let's ask a question. Is there any insistence as to which particular Kohen should eat it, or any Kohen? And here we find the Machlokas in the Mishnah. We mentioned there is a, a Mishnayas, Masechus Bikurim, and the Mishnah records the Machlokas between the Chachamim and Rabbi Yehuda. According to the Chachamim, you know which Kohen eats the, your Bikurim, <coughs> whichever Kohen is officiating them in the Beis HaMikdash at that time. You give it to the Kohen of the Mishmar. It's apportioned among those who are officiating at that time. Interesting. So you can't just give it to whoever you want. You bring it to the Beis HaMikdash, you give it to the Kohen who's there. But Rabbi Yehuda says no. Rabbi Huda says, you bring it to the Beis HaMikdash and then you can take it home. Now you can't eat it. You've got to give it to a Kohen, but you can give it to your next door neighbor Kohen, who's all the way up north, or all the way up south, or wherever. So that is an interesting machlokas. Do you specifically have to give it to the Kohenim on location when you bring it to the Beis HaMikdash, who were there officiating? Or no, you bought it, take it back, give it to whoever you want. What's at the heart of this machlokas? Says the Yerushalmi, as we know, there is no Talmud Bavli on uh, most of the Masechtas of Zoraim and certainly the land-based mitzvahs, but there is Yerushalmi on, on uh, Seder Zoraim. <coughs> and the Yerushalmi says, what lies at the heart of this dispute, which Kohen do you give the Bikurim to, is how do you view Bikurim? It's this very question that's being disputed. How do you categorize them? According to the Chachamim, they considered the primary defining characteristics of Bikurim as Kodshem is Beach. It's like Korbanos. Not entirely, but fundamentally. And therefore, in the same way that we, when you bring a Korban, so the parts that are given to a Kohen are given to the ones who officiate at that time, so too, like Kodshem is Beach, when you bring Bikurim, you give them to the Kohen officiating at that time. Rabbi Yehuda, on the other hand, understands that Bikurim, no. They're not like Korbanos. They're not like Kodshim Ezbeach. They're like Truma. They're what we call Kodshe Gvul. They're the broader category. It's true, you bring them to the Beis HaMikdash, but after that, you can bring them home like Truma. They can be given to anyone. So we see this uh, rather conceptual, if one would say, this rather Soloveitchik-sounding question of how do you categorize Bikurim, essentially, is, is not, none other than a machlokas between the Chachamim and Rabbi Yehuda, as is expressed in that machlokas, which Kohen do you give it to? There's only one thing left to say. And that's the thing that hasn't been spoken about yet. And namely, where do they get their views from? Where do Rabbi Yehuda and the Chachamim, what's their source that each one sees uh, Bikurim either as like Korbonos, Kochei Mizbeach, or like Truma, Kochei Gvul? For this, we consult the Meshachachma. And as we've seen on many occasions, <coughs> 
what the Meshachachma does is, is our, our normal uh, progression, I would say, is you begin with the Pasuk, as indeed you should, and then you graduate to the Gemara, as you also should. And then we stop, because we've, we've, we've gone the whole progression. But what the Meshachachma encourages us to do so often is once, if you started with the Pasuk and then moved on to the Gemara, so now that you're fully educated, so go back to the Pasuk. You never know what you'll see now. You'll never know what you'll discover in light of your, your fuller knowledge. And indeed, says the Meshachachma, if you wish to know where these two opinions come from, they come from our opening question. What is the source of waving Bikurim? Because we saw that's a machlokus between one opinion, Rebbe Lezer Ben Yaakov, and Rebbe Yehuda. This is where it all begins. According to Rebbe Lezer Ben Yaakov, who represents the opinion of the Chachamim, <coughs> as we said, they are learned from Tenufa, waving Bikurim is learned from Pasuk Dalad, which says, It's the Kohen who takes it. And what that means practically is the owner waves it, but the Kohen puts his hands underneath, really waving all of it. And that, because the mitzvah of waving Bikurim is learned from the Pasuk, which describes the Kohen waving, that tells us that primarily the Bikurim have entered the domain of the Kohen in the Beis Hamikdash. And that is why we see them as Kochim, as Be'ach, like Korbanos, albeit with a twist, but effect, essentially like Kochim as Be'ach. Rabbi Yehuda, on the other hand, and isn't it's the same Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yehuda in Pasuk Yud, who derives the source for Tanufa from there, and there the Torah says, Vihinachto, you the owner, wave the Bikurim. But because Rabbi Yehuda derives the waving as something that only the owner does, that represents the fact that it really is still belongs to the owner. He has to bring it to the base of Mikdash, but he can take it home. He can't eat it, only a Kohen can, but he can decide which Kohen can eat it. And it all comes back to that very technical seeming question at the beginning, where does Tanufa come from? But from there, the whole topic opens up. What is Bikurim at heart? And <coughs> this is a classic comment of Meshachachma. And what we do see, and, and important, I think, in, in summary, if, if, if the points are clear, is that how, however you weigh in on this question, whether you understand like the Chachamim, that it's Kochim is Be'ach, whether you understand like, like Rabbi Huda, that it's Bikurim, it is a composite mitzvah. It is not a, a, a binary thing at all. Because we demonstrated it has aspects of both types of categories. It's not brought on the Mizbeach, and it can be eaten anywhere. So there's no question that it has composite elements of the two types of kochim. What the, the maklokus will be is which is the dominant element, which is the defining element. Is it essentially kochim Mizbeach, it's like a korban, with chidushim, or is it essentially like truma? with counter chidushim. That's the delomdash that's shaila, so to speak. So this is the uh, comment of Meshachachma with regards to, to Bikurim, the halachic comment. And from there, or conceptual comment, from there we come to another mitzvah of Bikurim that I think, again, we are more familiar with for another reason. And that is the rec recitation 
of those verses that takes place when you bring Bikurim. And they begin in Pasuk, Hey. It's the famous Aramiya Vedavi. In our experience, it's not famous from bringing Bikurim, it's famous from Seder night, where we quote these, these Psukim and then we dissect them and we take them word by word, phrase by phrase. But this is the famous Arami of Veda V and it runs until Pasuk Yud, this recitation. Okay. <coughs> there is a very interesting question that is raised by a number of Mephorshim with regards to this recitation. And we begin by referring to a halacha that we see in a couple of places in the Gemara, in Kriya Torah. Namely, is it ever acceptable to end a pasuk halfway? Meaning to end the reading of that section of the Torah halfway through a pasuk. Or to start the new section of the, of the Torah reading halfway through a pasuk. Can it be done? If it could be done, it would solve a lot of problems. Because everyone needs at least three psukim. And if you have a section that has eight psukim and you could maybe do two and a half and two and a half and then five, that would be fantastic. Like on Rosh Chodesh, we have that issue. But the answer, as far as the halakha is concerned, is no. You can never read just half a pasuk. It's got to be all or nothing. And if you have to then repeat a pasuk, which we do on Rosh Chodesh, so be it. As the Gemara formulates the issue, it's in Megillah Kavbez and Tanis Kavzayin, any pasuk that, does, that isn't in the form that Moshe gave it to us, meaning transmitting from Hashem, we cannot uh, interrupt or curtail or, or, or stop and start in the middle. And this now becomes a principle when it comes to psukim. You can't start in the middle, you can't stop in the middle. <coughs> Says Rabbi Kamenetsky, well, the, will someone then please explain to me how the Torah tells us to start in the middle of a posuk? Where? In the beginning of Parshas Kisavo, the declaration that you need to say. Posuk hey. Ve'onisa Aramia ve'davi. So Aramia ve'davi is not the beginning of the posuk. It's already a few words in. But when the farmer, or whoever brings the Bikurim, when he opens his mouth, the first words you will hear from him are the words, Arami Avedavi. That is beginning a Pasuk, not at the beginning. I, we were just informed that that's not acceptable. It's not permitted. <coughs> so how can it be? Now I will say, <coughs> I'm tempted to add a, a Balabatish suggestion here. And that is that maybe this is not a standard case of starting a Pasuk in the middle. For the simple reason that the opening words are the words with which the Torah tells you to say the following. Which means it's not maybe like those other cases where you just arbitrarily start in the middle. It's the beginning of a sentence. You're starting the sentence where the Torah tells you to start because the Torah says, say the following. And you start for the beginning of what the Torah tells you to say. Clearly, uh, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky is not uh, happy with that <coughs> explanation, and he stays with, with his question. And the question, once again, uh, in, in summary, is how can we start a Pasuk in the middle? You're not meant to start Pasukim in the middle. It's not allowed. And Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky explains, 
and this is a this is an idea which is, has been shared by many mafarshim and poskim over the generations, and it's very interesting to see how it relates again to our common practice. And he opens by saying something very interesting. The psukim of the Torah, what are they for? I mean, what do we use them for? What mitzvah do we use them for? It sounds like an, an oversimple question. I mean, we use the psukim of the Torah to fulfill the mitzvah of learning Torah. Quite so. But learning Torah is not the only mitzvah that we use psukim of the Torah for. Meaning, aside from Talmud Torah, the mitzvah of learning Torah, there are other mitzvahs of the Torah. And the way that you fulfill them is through using psukim of the Torah. Some mitzvahs you need a lulav and esrog to do, some mitzvahs you need a sukkah for, and some mitzvahs you need psukim for, verses in the Torah. What are examples? Well, an obvious example is, is going to be the example at hand. Mikra Bikurim. When you say these verses in the Torah, Aramiya Vedavi, and you keep on going, so you are fulfilling one of the mitzvahs of the Torah, which is called Mikra Bikurim. The recitation accompanies Bikurim. What's another example where verses of the Torah are used to fulfill a mitzvah of the Torah? Birchas Kohanim. Birchas Kohanim is, is a verbatim quote of Psukim from the Torah. Yivarechacha, Shemishmarecha, Ya'er, and Yisa. It's all from the Torah. But when, you, when the Kohanim say those Psukim, it's not within the context or under the rubric of the mitzvah of Talmud Torah. It's the mitzvah within the Torah called Birchas Kohanim. So that's a, it's a, it's a fascinating idea. Sometimes the stuff of which a Torah mitzvah is made is Torah. The specific verses of recitation of Bikurim, specific verses of Birchas Kohanim. So, <coughs> so Rabbi Yaakov says, this principle that we have, that you can never interrupt a Pasuk in the middle, you can't stop in the middle, you can't start in the middle, is only true when you are reciting those psukim as part of the mitzvah in fulfillment of the mitzvah of learning Torah. Because this is one of the parameters of learning Torah. If you're learning Torah, it's got to be with the psukim exactly in the form as they were originally transmitted, not curtailed or truncated. However, in a situation where the mitzvah that you're performing is not the mitzvah of Talmud Torah. You're using words of Torah, but it's in fulfillment of a different mitzvah. Then there is no restriction of this issue of stopping a pasuk in the middle. When were we originally told about this issue? You can't start and stop in the middle. Let us remind ourselves. With the mitzvah of laning of Kriya Satora, that's Talmud Torah. But if you're using it in the, in the fulfillment of another mitzvah, they can start and stop in the middle. And so we do. And interestingly, there are examples, we could say, closer to home, <coughs> where we see this. And, there, and each of these, actually, there, there is uh, something of a, a discussion about, something of a, a discourse about. But nonetheless, what we're about to, to describe, I think, is the widespread minhag. Kiddush on Friday night. How does it begin? Well, I think there's two widespread minhagim. Many people start by saying, Yom HaShishi. Yom HaShishi vayichulu HaShamayim v'aretz. The words Yom HaShishi are the final words of the previous Pasuk. 
Vayichulu is the beginning of the next Pasuk. So Yom HaShishi are the final two words, and we say them, we start our Pasuk almost at the end. That's interesting. <coughs> now, some people have the custom of starting earlier than that. They say, Vayera Vayivoka Yom HaShishi. Very nice. The problem has not been solved. Because Vayera Vayivoka Yom HaShishi is also the second half of the Pasuk. Because the beginning of that Pasuk is Vayar Elohim Eskol Asher Tov Ma'od and then Vayera Vayivoka Yom HaShishi. So anyone who follows the, what I believe is the widespread minhag of starting either with Yom HaShishi or Vayera Vayivoka Yom HaShishi uh, seem, seemingly is offside of this issue that you can't start a Pasuk halfway through. There are some people who are makbit to start from the beginning of that Pasuk, but I don't think that's the, the Minaka Ola. But what is the resolution, as we have seen? You're not saying these words in fulfillment of the mitzvah of Talmud Torah. You're saying them in fulfillment of the mitzvah of Zohar Es Yom HaShabbos Lekadsho, of, of Kiddush. And as such, there's room to say that the issue of starting a Pasuk halfway through is not, is not a problem. What is another example? And this was mentioned by Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Orbach. There are many who have the custom <coughs> to say what we call the Sheish Zechiros, the six Zechiros. Svaradim actually have ten, Ashkenazim have uh, six, but one that they have in common is remembering Mahmad Har Sinai. And, and how does it? Raki Shamer Lacha, Ushmor Ma'od, anyone who's familiar with the text after Shakras of the Sheish Zechiros, Pen Yosur Mevavcha, Kayamechayecha. And tell your children, Tell your children, remember, don't forget, the day you stood before Hashem at Chorev. And that is the end of the Zechira, the end of the quotation. Now, if you look in the Chumash, you will notice that those words, with which we conclude, this remembrance, are the first words in a Pasuk. The Pasuk hasn't finished yet. It keeps going. Etc., etc. There's many more words to come. And, and we don't say them. We don't finish the Pasuk. We stop it halfway through. Less than halfway through. Is this not an issue? You're stopping a Pasuk where Moshe didn't stop it. But Rabbi Shlomo Zaman Orbach, once again, <coughs> says exactly the same idea. We're not, we're not citing this Pasuk in the interest of fulfilling the mitzvah of Talmud Torah. You're citing the Pasuk in the interest of fulfilling the mitzvah of remembering Mamad Har Sinai, which according to the Ramban is a positive mitzvah to remember. The, or more correctly, a negative mitzvah, not to forget. The Rambam famously does not cite this in his 613 mitzvahs, the prohibition against forgetting Har Sinai, but the Ramban does. The simple reading of the Pasuk seems to be on the Rabban's side. The Pasuk says, be, take care not that you not forget Mamad Har Sinai. Either way, <coughs> because it's in fulfillment of, of a mitzvah of the Torah, remembering Har Sinai, as we have seen, there is no issue or no problem of stopping a Pasuk halfway through. And the truth is, just to, just to nuance the point a little bit more before we, we have our concluding uh, uh, example, is that even within the mitzvah of learning Torah, we often quote half psukim. Doesn't the Gemara quote half psukim when it wants to prove something, when it wants to bring a proof? It doesn't quote the entire pasuk each time 
And imagine how long Shas would be. I mean, you'd have to defer the, the, the Daf Yomi Siyam for, for months. Every time you quote something from a Pasuk, the, 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 the whole Pasuk, we don't do it. But, but you're learning Torah. Yes. But, but you see how, how, how delicate the, the matter is? You're not quoting these words in the interest of reciting Psukim as Talmud Torah, but you wish to draw a proof from those set of words. Even there, says Rav Shlomo Kluger, there is no problem at all to quote just a, just a few words, not the entire Pasuk. It really is a fascinating idea, again, the notion that you can have mitzvahs that are made up of Psukim. They're not Talmud Torah. But we're doing other mitzvahs, using psukim to do them. And by the time we think, we, uh, we haven't we by no means exhausted the list, but there's already half a dozen mitzvahs. Birchas Kohanim, Mikra Bikurim, Remembering Harsinai, Kiddush and Friday night. <coughs> and the matter actually, and with this we'll, we'll, we'll close this discussion, but the matter relates to a question, a halachic question, that will become relevant in a couple of weeks' time. Namely, Slichos. Does a person need to make their morning brachos before saying slichos? There's different, there's different customs. Some people, they don't say any of the morning brachos until slichos are done. And they're about to start shachros and then, and then they make their morning brachos. Others say, you have to say at least some of the morning brachos before slichos. Why? Because some of the morning brachos include Birchas Torah, the blessing over the Torah. You're not allowed to say words of Torah before Birchas Torah. But Slichos is full of words of Torah. I mean, it starts with Ashrei, and it keeps going. There's Psukim upon Psukim. And you can't say words of Torah without saying Birchas Torah. And that's why some people were insistent that at least Birchas Torah should make before Slichos. It's full of, it's full of Divrei Torah. And yet those who don't, those who say Birchas HaTorah after Slichos, defend it based on this very same idea. Because these Psukim, and again, it's a nuanced thing, these Psukim are not being said to fulfill the mitzvah of Talmud Torah. They're said in fulfillment of the mitzvah either of doing tshuva or, or tefillah. That's really what Slichos are. I mean, Slichos, again, is a hybrid it's really, it's the tefillah part of tshuva, but it's not Talmud Torah. And therefore, even though you're saying pasuk after pasuk, nevertheless, there were those who felt that it is not uh, necessary to say Birchas Torah for reasons that we've said. So as we see, this is a question that has far-reaching implications for things that are, are quite close to our ongoing practice. Let's move on now from Bikurim uh, a little bit further into the Parsha to Perik Kafzayin to the section of, of the, well, I say the brachos and the klolos, the blessings and the curses, that itself is, needs to be defined because there are two sections in our Parsha of brachos and klolos. There's the ones on Hagrizim and Ha'eval, and then there, then there is the second Tochacha. There are different forms of, of brachos and klolos, but we are referring to the, the Hagrizim and the Har Eval, and that's in Perik Kav Zayin, Pasuk, we'll start with Pasuk Yud Aleph, Vayitzav Moshe Es Ha'am, Vayom Mor, so Moshe commands the people on that day saying, Eile, Yamdu Levarech Es Ha'am, Al Hagrizim, 
Okay, you have these two mountains, Hargrizim and Har Eval. So there will be certain tribes and they will stand to bless the people on, Har- on Hargrizim. And it lists those six. Shimon, Velevi, Yehuda, Yisachar, Yosef, Ubinyam. Um, okay, and then you have six others. Pasigud Gimel. Ve'ele yamdu ala klala bahar eval. There are those who will stand to curse uh, on, on har eval. Reuven gad v'asher uzvulun dan v'naftali. There is much discussion, <coughs> as we can appreciate, on what basis was it decided or were, were certain tribes chosen to be the, the blessing tribes and other tribes to be the the cursing uh, tribes. Either way, uh, that's not something that, would, that we are going to get into now, because actually the question that I'd like to discuss is a much more basic question. In fact, it's, it's a, a kind of a disarming question. And it's raised by Rabbi Yosef Salant in the Sefer Be'er Yosef. And his question is as follows. Why are both of these groups on a mountain? I mean, they're not on the same mountain, but why are they both on mountains? And what does he mean by that? Six of these curses, pardon me, six of these tribes are, are, are those that will offer a blessing. The other six will offer curses. As far as we know, it seems appropriate that those who offer the blessing will be on a mountain. Because a mountain is an elevated place and a blessing is a high but a curse is a low. Which means, and, and by the way, the Levium were in the middle. But then you had the, the blessing tribes on one mountain, the cursing tribes on the other mountain, and the Levium were, were in the valley in between. But perhaps one could suggest that the arrangement should have been somewhat different. The blessing tribes should have been at the top of the mountain. Levium, you could put them halfway between them. And then the cursing tribe should have been as low as low as one can get, because they're describing a low. It's an interesting Shiloh, and one doesn't exactly know who to ask, because they both were on mountains. But what's, what are we to make of this? <coughs> and the Bear Yosef offers a very beautiful interpretation, and it's based on a well-known comment of the Marsha in Maseches Subos. The Gemara there in Ksubis, it's also actually in Gitin, in, in, in those mid-nuns, nunzayin, nunches, which describe the, uh, the Churban, but it describes a, a really terrible scene at the time of the destruction of the second base Hamikdash. There's absolute, the, 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 the food has been, well, we know it was destroyed by the, uh, by the zealots. There's a state of siege, people are starving, and the Gemara relates, recounts, how... Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who, as we know, was very famous around. He was the Nasi at that time. He was, he was smuggled out as if he was dead. And then he spoke to Vespasian. He asked him to spare Ten Liyavne Vechachameha. There's a whole uh, controversy there. Why did he not ask to, 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 to leave, that they should leave the entire base HaMikdash alone? He felt that that would have been too much and he would have ended up with nothing. So he took the more modest gain and asked for Yavna Vechachameha, which is the, the continuation of Torah. And that's really what we have keeping us going until we get back to our full um, glory with the, with the Beis HaMikdash again. <coughs> Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, he's walking um, and he comes across, he comes across a girl 
and this girl is, is desperate for food. So much so that the way the Gemara describes it, she is going through the, the dung of the donkeys of the Arabs who'd been passing by to see if she can pick out kernels of barley that had not fully been digested, something to eat. It's a really, it, it's, one cannot imagine a more pitiful sight. And he doesn't really look at her that much, but she looks at him and she says, Rabbi, don't you remember me? But he doesn't because her face is, is worn and weathered beyond recognition. <coughs> she said, I'm the daughter of Nakdimam Ben-Gurion. Nakdimam Ben-Gurion in his time was one of the wealthiest Jews in Jerusalem. And in fact, she says, <coughs> I'm the daughter of Nakdimam Ben-Gurion and you're at my wedding and you signed on my ksuba. And, and you know that the amount of Maksuva was something like 10,000 gold coins, an absolute fortune, and the demon Ben-Gurion was, was, was good for it. And, and this is the next time he sees her, when she's going through the, the, the droppings of the animals to get the, any type of uh, kernels of barley. So the way the Gemara describes it is as follows. Bocha Rabbi Yochanan Ben-Zakai. So Rabbi Yochanan Ben-Zakai, he started to weep. I mean, who wouldn't? The Omar and said the following, Ashrechem Yisrael. Happy are you, Israel. When you fulfill the will of Hashem, This is a nation when they are fulfilling Hashem's will as they should. No nation can control them. No one can touch them. When they're up, they're really up. <clears throat> but look, when they do not fulfill, and obviously he's not blaming this girl particularly, she didn't do anything wrong, which is part of the Jewish people who had deteriorated. When they're not fulfilling Hashem's will, he will hand them into, under the control of a lowly nation. And not even into the hands of the nation itself. They're dependent upon the animals of that lowly nation. And that's really what was depicted um, on that occasion. So this was Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's uh, epitaph from that incident. And the Marsha, Rabbi Shmuel Edels in his famous Chidushe Agodos, so he asked a simple question. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, he captioned his whole pronouncement by saying, Ashrechem Yisrael, happy are you Israel? Well, I don't know, says Marsha. He goes on to describe an extreme high and an extreme low. I think with regards to the extreme high, you can say Ashrechem Yisrael. If only that was the, the, the entire sentence. Happy are you Israel when you perform the will of, of Hashem, so no one can touch you. That's Ashrechem Yisrael. But he goes on to say, but when you don't fulfill the will of Hashem, things are terrible. But if things are terrible, and they're unbelievably bad. So, so how is that also, as part of the sentence, the second half of the sentence, how is it all captioned with the words, Ashrechem Yisrael? And the Marsha gives the most profound answer. 
and says that actually both of these are Ashrechem Yisrael. Because ultimately, the, the joy of the Jewish people is about their, the fact that they are connected with Hashem to a degree that is not enjoyed by any other nation. That's, that's the Amsegula. He invokes or mentions the well-known idea, Ramban and others talk about it, that uh, other nations of the world, they have some type, of, some type of sar, intermediary or spiritual overseer. Their relationship with Hashem is not direct. But the Jewish people's relationship with Hashem is direct. And that sar can be their, their, their national uh, destiny and, and so on and so forth. <coughs> and the Jewish people don't have that. They have Hashem. Now, how does their, relation, their exclusive relationship with Hashem and their distinction from the other nations, how does it manifest itself? Well, it depends. It can manifest itself in, with, with enormous success or with appalling failure. But they're both manifestations of the, same, of the same relationship. Why? Because when they fulfill Hashem's will, so then no one can touch them because they are fully connected with Hashem and raised above everyone else. Quite so. But when they don't fulfill the will of Hashem, so then what happens? They're not treated like the other nations of the world who also aren't really fulfilling Hashem's will, but they have some spiritual overseer to, to, to see that everything is okay with them more or less. But the Jewish people don't have that. And it's because they don't have that, if we could use the term advisedly, it's Hashem or nothing. So when they plummet, it's also an expression of the fact that Hashem is not prepared to relegate them to be like the other nations of the world. And as, as harsh as it sounds, the enduring message is that, that in one way or another, the Jewish people have a unique relationship with Hashem. <coughs> this is the concept of, of Ein Mazel the Yisrael. Rav Soloveitchik used to say that the word, we say Ein, Ein Mazel, what does Mazel mean? It means many things, but... but the word mazal comes from the word nozel. Of course, there are other statements in Chazal which do seem to indicate that Jewish people can be affected by mazalos to some degree, yes, to some degree, no. What I would certainly say if, that if you are at a, a simcha and someone comes to wish you mazal tov, I would not recommend responding with the words ein mazal li Yisrael. I mean, that is, that is a way to end the conversation. There is obviously, we also say mazal tov. <clears throat> but fundamentally, and as the primary guide for us, we do, we do not say, uh, we're not guided by mazel. And Rasulavechik said mazel comes to the word nozel. Nozel means to flow. And, and, and really the way things flow, the way events flow, isn't that the way we talk about it? The flow of events, the flow of, uh, of time, etc. Things don't flow for the Jewish people with the cause and effect uh, relationship that they do for others. That is certainly something that we can that we can see and appreciate. And therefore, says the Marsha, again to, to, to remind ourselves, that is why Rabbi Yochanan Menzakai he captioned and he headlined his entire description of the Jewish people, their their good times and their bad times, with the words Ashrechem Yisrael. What, what a thing to say. Ashrechem Yisrael for, for when you do Hashem's will and Ashrechem Yisrael even when you don't. 
and things end up being worse for you, but only because Hashem will never relinquish the Jewish people and He will never make them like other nations. It's called tough love. That's the second half of the sentence. What does this have to do with us? Says the Be'er Yosef. Do we now understand why both the tribes that are associated with blessing and the tribes that are associated with curses are both standing on mountains? Our question was that blessing is a high, curses are low. So let the, so let the, 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 the tribes who are associated with the blessing, they should be on the top of the mountain. And those who are associated with the curse, they should be on, at a lower point. But we see it's not so. Because in the same way that the blessing that the Jewish people receive by fulfilling Hashem's will is, a ref- is a, 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 an illustration <coughs> or a demonstration of their uh, elevated status, so too are the curses. We hope they don't happen. But if they should ever happen, they are in their own way an expression of the elevated status of the Jewish people. As surely as Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai said, Ashrechim Yisrael, both on the blessings and on the curses, that's the idea that's being introduced or depicted by the Torah when it places on an elevated plane both the tribes that are associated with blessing and those associated with curse. Very, very thought-provoking uh, idea from Rabbi Yosef Salant in the Be'er Yosef. And from here, let us move to our uh, final uh, discussion this evening, and that it's Mamish, the final few psukim. We missed out the entire tochacha, which of course <coughs> uh, should not be done, uh, certainly not in shul. There was a custom, the Mishtabura says, I mean, this is how when people take things to extremes, they, they end up uh, undoing everything. There is a custom that the tochacha should be read somewhat faster and somewhat uh, a, a lower voice, but again, people still need to hear it. And the Mishnah mentions <coughs> that there are certain places where the, the way that they express this idea is they missed out the Tochacha entirely. Uh, and aside from the mitzvah of Talmud Torah, the Tochacha needs to be heard. The only thing worse than a Tochacha that's heard is a Tochacha that isn't heard. So, <coughs> but nevertheless, for purposes of, of, uh, of our share this evening, so we come to the beginning of Perik Kaftes, which is uh, Shvi, Shvi in the uh, in the Chumash. And in fact, it's a positive message, which is crucial. After the Tochacha, the Jewish people need a, a positive message. And what does Moshe say? Again, Perik Kaftes pasuk Aleph. We'll read two or three of the psukim, maybe more, to, uh, one or two more, to see. To get our, our, our footing here. The Moshe calls the Jewish people and says, You have seen You have seen everything Hashem did do in front of your eyes in the land of Egypt. Of course, this is the next generation. So for some of them, it's their parents who saw. Paro, his servants. All the great miracles, the signs and wonders. Moshe says, you've seen, you've had direct or secondary exposure to great, great miracles. And then comes a, a, a somewhat enigmatic posuk. 
But Hashem did, and Hashem did not give you a, a heart to understand. V'naim the rose eyes to see, v'naim the ears to hear. Ad Hashem did not give you understanding until this day. That's interesting. What does that mean? In, 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 what, in what sense? <coughs> this is the source, by the way, for the, for the concept we say in Pirkei Ovos, Ben Arboim Lebina. The age of 40, a person gets understanding because here is Moshe <coughs> talking to the Jewish people 40 years after those events. And the full understanding comes after 40 years, which is very interesting because it's really it's 40 elapsed years. It's not the age of 40, um, etc. But uh, this, this is the source for that Mishnah in Pirkei Ovos. The Meshachachma <coughs> explains the Parshanut differently. Go back in Pasuk Gimel. Hashem has not given you a heart to understand. Eyes to see. Until this day. Now you may know that the word Ad, which means until, can have two meanings. As Lahavdil, as surely as it can in English. Up to an including or up to an excluding. Or to put it in the rabbinic parlance, ad ad bichlal, including, or ad lo ad bichlal, excluding. So we have taken the, the traditional understanding so far that Hashem didn't give you understanding until today, but today He did. Finally, you got understanding. But the Meshachachma favors the approach that when it says Adayamazet, it means up to and including. It means since Hashem didn't give you a heart to understand, and you still don't have a heart to understand, even today. Well, why not? And, and more to the point, so are you, are you ever going to get one? It says, Meshachachma, read on. Pasuk Dalad, the first two Psukim described the miracles of leaving Egypt. But then Pasuk, and then Pasuk Gimel we read, Pasuk Dalet is about the miracles of the wilderness. I guided you, I took you 40 years in the Midbar. Your clothes were not worn out. Your shoes were not worn out. Even with all that traveling, etc. You didn't have normal food. You had manna from heaven. So, <coughs> What does all this mean? Says Meshachachma, if you live in the wilderness, if Hashem took you out of Egypt, you don't need a heart to understand. You don't need eyes to see and you don't need ears to hear. Because Hashem's guidance of your life is unavoidable. And you're literally living on miracles the whole time. And nothing else is happening. So the concept of a discerning heart, a wise heart, and eyes that see, you don't need them if you're treated to, to a series of supernatural miracles. They are what would be called in today's uh, vernacular no-brainers, which means that you don't, you don't really need particular insight. As long as you don't avoid them, you're fine. But when will you need those things? When will you need a, an understanding heart, eyes that see and ears that hear, 
as you make the transition that's about to take place after the passing of Moshe Rabbeinu, and that is the transition into the land of Israel, because there's not going to be any more manna from heaven there, nor water from Miriam's well, nor clouds of glory, not in those original ways. And yet, <coughs> Hashem's providence will continue to guide you. But it's going to happen much more through nature. And what is the transition here? Or what is the progression more correctly? The ideal for the Jewish people in this world is not to live in the wilderness. It's to live in the land of Israel. It's to live in natural existence. Because to bring all of that sanctity into the day-to-day pursuits of the physical world. Now that's easier said than done. And for, and for that sake, Hashem first gave them a formative, fundamental, miraculous experience. Those miracle years were the launching years of the Jewish people to instill within their national consciousness an awareness of Hashem as their guide and provider. Once they have that, they can now, based on that, enter into the land of Israel. However, it's not a given anymore. You know what you'll need now in order to make a go of things? Three things. A heart that understands, eyes that see, and ears that hear. And that, says Meshachachma, is why Moshe is saying, up to and including today, as long as I'm with you, says Moshe to the people, and as long as we're in the wilderness, food is falling out of the sky, so on and so forth, you're not yet accessing an understanding heart or, 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 or correct vision. But you will soon... And you had all of these miracles to help you in order to do that as you make that transition. And that is why Pasuk Hay <coughs> concludes with the words, which we read before, you did not eat regular food, you had this miracle food. In or, what is all of this for? In order that you should know, says Meshachachma, the two names mentioned at the end of the Pasuk, and we find them so often in the Chumash, the name Hashem Yudke Vavke is a name that's associated with miracles. That's why as a prelude to the miracles in Egypt, Hashem says to, to, to Moshe, Ushmi Hashem, lo no dati lahem. I never really fully operated with the, with the Ovos, with the name of Yudke Vavke, which is a name of miracles, but I will now, and that's the prelude to the miracles of Egypt. So the name Yudke Vavke is a name of miracles. Elohim is much more Hashem guiding natural forces. And really you could say, as the Pasuk indeed does say, the, the goal of the time in the, in the wilderness, that, that miracle time, is summed up in these words. In order that you should know moving forward, it's one and the same. Ani Hashem, who, who related to you in a miraculous way, is also Elokechem. Meaning, even through the more natural means, will still be guiding you. And, and that now, but for that you need an understanding heart, you need to keep your eyes open, you need to keep your ears open. And that is why in this here the Meshachachma has, has quite an original interpretation. <coughs> the Gemara says, when the Jewish people fulfill Hashem's will, Mosifim koach bepamalia shalmala. They add power to the heavenly assembly, to the assembly on, of on high. Mosifim koach bepamalia shalmala. Who are the pamalia shalmala? One could only imagine. One could, uh, 
But it says Meshachachma, Pamalia Shalmala are the forces of nature with which Hashem governs the world. And the forces of nature can act in, 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 a, in a standard way, or their blessing can be maximized. It doesn't mean that the, that the rules of nature are abrogated or violated or overridden, but they are maximized. There is, as we know, within the rules of nature, there can be so much scope for success and less than success. What ensures the maximum strength of those forces? Pamalia Shalmala is the Jewish people fulfilling Hashem's will. So this is Meshachachma's understanding of these psukim. Again, as is uh, often the case, very new uh, perspective uh, on the psukim. But the idea, of course, so profound, especially the, to understand the relationship of the years of the time in the wilderness with the time in the land of Israel. One is dependent on the other. They're not the same. But each one was necessary for uh, the wilderness had to be there beforehand. And it's certainly a lesson for us to take to heart. The more, the more we do so, we should be zoche to fulfill and see the fulfillment of the final pasuk of the parsha. You shall fulfill the words of this covenant and perform them so that you be successful and blessed in all that you should do. We'll leave it over there for this evening. Pick up again in Mitzvah next week. All the very best.